Last night, we began with opening up the gospel of the kingdom announced in the person of Jesus Christ. And I suggested to you that when we understand the gospel in the way Jesus announced it, that it's, no law, it's not simply a religious message. In fact, it invites us in to a story that began way back in creation, a story that is moving to the new creation, and a story that is given significance and meaning by the history of God's work, redemptive and judging work in the creation in and through His people. And that the climactic moment, the center of it all, is the coming of Jesus Christ, and even more central to that is His death and His resurrection. And that those events are the hinge, as it were, of universal history. The hinge in which the old age, as, the, as Jesus and Paul and the, and the rabbis called it, the old age dominated by sin was, was defeated and the age to come was ushered in uh, by the resurrection. And in beginning with that, we then talked about how Jesus himself would have been inviting us into that story and why this is so important. And the main point I tried to make is you are going to live, all of us are going to live out of some story. It's not a matter of if we'll be shaped by a story. It's simply a matter of which story will shape us. And if we're Christians, we desperately want more and more for the biblical story to form and shape our lives. And there's a sense in which we could say the whole process of sanctification, of growing in holiness and obedience, is one of increasingly being formed and shaped by the gospel and the biblical story and less and less shaped by the idolatry of the culture in which we live. And so I suggested at the end, actually in response to a question, how in the world can we help people (laughs) including ourselves, read the Bible as one story. And I already suggested this, but I want to start with this this evening. We need, says Richard Bauckham, summaries. We need summaries of the biblical story and that they are more or less essential. And what he means by essential is, as I mentioned yesterday, if we start reading the Bible, we can get very quickly bogged down in the details of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and what, what have you. We can get bogged down in those details and we can lose the, the, the thread. We can lose the path. We cannot, we, we're forgetting that this is an ongoing story in which we're called up to be part. And so we need these summaries so that they can guide our reading of Scripture and make sure that we're reading it along the grain of the storyline. But these summaries should never, ever replace Scripture. That's why I'm thankful that uh, the Redemption Churches are reading the Scripture together. Maybe others of you are joining in them. In other words, it's not just reading drama. We've got to be reading the Bible through. And we've got to be reading the Scripture because that is where the Spirit of God testifies to Jesus Christ and draws us into that salvation. Drama of Scripture or any other book won't do that. It can only help us read the Bible, and as we're reading that, it's God's powerful Word to shape and form us. But we need to be shaped by the story that the the Bible tells. And so Bauckham says we need summaries. Tom Wright says that an essential part of our theological and missional task today is to tell this story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. What he's just done is looked at the Western story and suggested various ways in which the church is being shaped by it. And then he comes to this and he says, the only way we can subvert those idolatrous stories is by telling one that is equally comprehensive, equally powerful, and will shape us more faithfully. And so an essential part of that missional theological task is to tell this story as clearly as possible. All the way from six little symbols that Chris Gonzalez shared with you to bigger books that tell that story. All of them help us to get a sense of that storyline. 
So what I'm going to do is, get, is spend now just a few minutes overviewing drama that you're going to be reading, and maybe, <laughs> maybe this overview will help you read drama, and drama helps you read Scripture, maybe. So let's, let me overview uh, drama of Scripture and what we're trying to do in this book. We're using a six-act play. Now, if you know, if, if you're sitting there as a theater major, you're saying, dramas are only supposed to have five acts. Yeah, well, sorry. There were six, and we had to use six. And we use a six-act play. And we start with act one. This is a very, this is the most neglected act in the Bible. And in fact, I believe that most evangelical churches have a very limited doctrine of creation. But the story opens with God speaking the world into existence. And we're introduced to this God who is powerful and loving and good as He makes and forms this home for His, cre- for his creatures. And then as He reaches that climactic moment, He creates a man and a woman, and he puts them in this home and in this garden, and he tells them, I've got a job for you. I want you to begin to steward and to delight in discovering all the rich potentials that I've put into this creation. Your task is to begin to build, if you use the language we use today, to build culture. The the, the story is going to begin in a garden, and it's going to end in a city. And so you are to rule the creation. You're to delight in all the good potential. And I have this picture of God at the end of Genesis 1 rubbing his hands saying, oh, that is very good. I can't wait till human beings begin to discover all the rich potential in my world. I can't wait till they learn to use their minds and as they use their minds and develop their minds, the joy that that brings. I can't wait till they discover the richness and the fullness of emotional life. I can't wait till they start to understand how they can work with their hands and they can take the wood from trees and turn them into useful kinds of furniture for themselves. I can't wait till they start to learn how to play together and and they create football. I can't wait till they start to work with sound and they start to harmonize and put sound together and make music. I can't wait till they start to discover the colors and put them together and form beauty and delight in that beauty. And so he gives them this task of opening up all the potentials of the creation. And the whole purpose of this creation, and we see this especially when we see what went wrong in Romans 1, was that human beings would delight in all of these gifts, enjoy the presence of God, delight in doing this together with one another, stewarding, caring for the creation as it developed, and then returning to God maybe hourly and throwing our arms around God and saying, Thank you, Father, for the wonderful gifts that you have given me. Thank you for the relationships of friendship and marriage. Thank you for the delight that we find in various kinds of order in our world, and so on. And so human beings were meant to delight in the creation. And to just stop for a moment, we can say, this is precisely the insight of the consumer culture in which we live. The consumer culture in which we live understands fully that God has made a world full of delight. But the problem with a consumer culture is that it has made it a focus rather than one part of our life that surrounds God. But God meant for humanity to delight in and to enjoy His creation. But then in putting human beings over that, those human beings refused to live by His Word. They decided they had a better way of of enjoying this creation, and they decided to live out of their own Word. And in so doing, they brought the whole world into a mess. It wasn't simply a matter that they made a mistake. Now the whole creation, every part of human life was twisted. Everything now that humans would do, from their art to their music to their construction to build to law and building economic life, 
all of those things that were meant to be good now had become disfigured and twisted as human beings became idolatrous. And Genesis 3 through 11 traces for us the story of what sin is doing to our world. And maybe you'd never even thought of this before, but Genesis 3 through 11 covers way, way more time than the rest of the Bible put together. It covers a huge amount of time, and it shows what sin is doing to the world. It shows us the origin of sin, God's judgment on sin, the spread of sin, the effects of sin, and it finally culminates in Babel where they are doing what God told them to do in a sense, building culture, but a culture now that is centered in their own idolatry and no longer a culture that glorified God. And so as it were, this act too of sin as the curtain drops, we're in the middle of a big mess. The good world that God has made, the very good world that God delighted in, is now in a mess. Every part of it has been polluted and touched by human rebellion. What will God do? Now, in Genesis 3, it says that that they heard the sound of the Lord God as He came into the garden. Remember that text? Now, I don't know this for sure, but I'll just offer this as a possibility. The word that is used there, the Hebrew word that is used for sound, is a word that's used throughout the Psalms over and over again for a very loud sound. And it's often used for the sound of God coming in judgment. So it may be the sound is not the pitter-patter of God's feet looking for Adam and Eve, but God thundering into the garden, what have you done? What have you done with my world? And the question is, what will God now do? Well, God does pronounce judgment, but he gives them a promise. And that promise is that I am going to crush all the evil forces that you have unleashed. And I'm going to restore this world back to what it was meant to do, and I'm going to do it through one of your descendants, Eve. And so this promise weaves its way through the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis constantly threatened by sin. And finally, in Genesis 12, God chooses uh, uh, Abraham. And in choosing Abraham, he makes him a promise, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great people, and I'm going to bless you. And what's very beautiful here is that the word bless, well, I don't know how about you, but the church I grew up in, the word bless was almost emptied of meaning. I don't know if your church is like that, but Bless is what you said when you didn't know what else to say. You know, I'm going to pray for you, brother. Lord, bless him. What's that mean? I don't know. I just know that I have to pray for him, and I don't know what to pray. And so bless kind of takes on this meaning. It's, it's sort of warm and fuzzy, but with no content. That's too bad. Because the word bless in the Bible is this rich word of God restoring delight and shalom, of God returning blessing. And, and, and Israelite readers would have picked up on the fact that in Genesis 1, God said he blessed the creation. It says it several times in Genesis 1. And then the word blessed disappears. And then for the next three uh, chapters, 3 through 11, the word curse replaces the word blessed. Now God's curse is on the creation. used five times throughout Genesis 3 through 11. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham, and the word bless returns, and he uses the word five times, I believe, to counteract the five times the word curse is used. And what he is saying is, Abraham, I'm choosing you to overturn the curse that has come on the world. I'm using, I'm going to use you, I'm going to use the nation that I'm going to make from you, I'm going to use that nation to bring about blessing. It's like Israel is being sent as a, as a lifeguard out into a drowning world to save this drowning world. And God is going to use Abraham. He's going to bless them as a nation. He's going to um, put them on the land. And so in scene one, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, he begins to form this people, slowly forms them. He forms them through a covenant. He forms them through law. He forms them through coming and dwelling among them. He forms them with a mighty act of redemption. He gradually and slowly sculpts and forms these people through Genesis, through Deuteronomy. 
And then finally, they're at the edge, in the book of Deuteronomy, at the edge of the land, ready to go in. The people have been formed. And then in the second part of the story, Israel is put on display in the land. The book of Ezekiel says that Israel and Jerusalem stood in the middle of all the nations. And all the rabbis understood that Israel was put centrally at the crossroads of the nations so that they could be visible to the nations. And so here God takes his people and says, I've formed them, now I'm going to put them on the land. And so he puts them on the land on display. The problem is that Israel fails in their mission. They fail badly. And in fact, it's like this lifeguard that's been sent out to save a drowning world. Now they're drowning too. See, the problem is that Israel shared in the evil and the sin that made up this world, and that had to be dealt with. And so Israel itself could not function as that people simply because sin still was rooted so deeply in their own hearts. And so it's almost like if you're reading this story, you come to the end of the book of Kings, and if you've got a good sense of the storyline, it's almost like you want to say, the end. God tried. Didn't work. The end. Maybe he's going to start over. Maybe he's going to let it go his own course. But you get a sense that Israel now, sent into exile, who's part of the mess, as a matter of fact, has become more dark than many of the nations around them, has become more idolatrous than many of the nations around them. You almost get the sense that, well, it didn't work, the end. But this is when the prophets come on the scene. And the prophets, the writing prophets, make, uh, make clear that there's coming a day when God is going to complete his work. He's going to send someone who is going to identify with and represent all Israel, and he is somehow going to act as this Messiah, this anointed king, to bring about and fulfill God's purposes and establish a worldwide kingdom to restore the kingdom of creation that he created in the beginning. So Israel begins to hold on to this promise. And they be, as they hold on to this promise and they look forward to the kingdom, as I mentioned yesterday, as I started with the gospel, they were reading Daniel and Isaiah because they were looking forward to this day when the kingdom would come. And in fact, the book of Daniel says in 70 times 7 weeks, 77 weeks, there is going to, the kingdom is going to come. And so they had counting down these weeks, and the rabbis had it figured out, okay, these weeks, we, the, the Messiah is coming about right here. And so about a hundred years on either side of Jesus, a number of messianic movements arose where the Messiah would, a person would claim to be the Messiah, and they would follow a pattern that, had, that, that was done about 10 or 11 times before Jesus did it, and the pattern would be to follow Judas Maccabeus, who was in the second century B.C., and they would come in on a horse, and they would come into the shouts of, Hosanna, the, coming, the king is coming in the name of the Lord, from Zechariah 9. And they would come into these shouts of Hosanna with palm branches raising and putting down their, uh, their, their robes. And then the, this person claiming to be the Messiah would come in, and then he would immediately do what Judas Maccabeus did. He would go to the temple, and he would cleanse the temple. And he'd say, now the temple is ready again, and God's dwelling is among us. And so Jesus does this as well. But he does it so differently than all the other messiahs. But they were all waiting for this messiah. And many of these messiahs were crucified by Rome. And that's why, for the Jew, a Messiah who was crucified was a stumbling block. You, you couldn't, that was the failure. That showed he wasn't the Messiah. That showed that he tried to usher in the kingdom and he failed because the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome, crucified him. And so here they were ready for the coming kingdom. Jesus comes and, as we saw yesterday, announces good news. This kingdom you've been looking for is here. But these Jews expected, number one, that it would be a very ethnic kingdom. People would be incorporated into the Jewish kingdom. Number two, they expected that this kingdom would come by violence and force. They expect God would establish a worldwide kingdom with this very powerful Messiah. And so Jesus comes, and he announces that he is the Messiah, and they start to look at him, and they say, this doesn't look very much like a Messiah. 
He doesn't look like Isaiah 63 Messiah who's going to throw the nations into a wine vat and trample them down. That doesn't look very much like the Messiah. He doesn't look like this. He looks more like a rabbi than a Messiah. And here's just an interesting tidbit. The book of Matthew that is the gospel written to Jews. The gospel written to Jews. You never have the disciples calling Jesus rabbi. Ever. He always, they always call him Lord. Because he's making clear to the Jewish people that Jesus is not simply a rabbi, he is Lord. So never on the lips of the disciples do you ever hear them call Jesus rabbi. Except for two times. Can you guess when those would be? And who they might be? I bet you could if you only think about it for a minute. Who betrayed Jesus? When he betrayed Jesus, he comes up to Jesus and kisses him and calls him rabbi. Only two times. And the whole point of this is Jesus looks very much like a rabbi. But he's not. He's so much more. But he doesn't look like the Messiah they're looking for. He's a man with unexplained power because the Spirit of God is on him. The power of God is broken into history to heal. But it sure doesn't look like it. And so Jesus then goes about gathering Israel like the prophets had promised, promises their renewal. But then he finally, and this, I, I just, we just need to somehow get to the point where we can see how weird and strange this would have felt for any Jew and any Gentile. That this man is crucified, that he is humiliated on the cross. That this man is humiliated, shamed, tortured, to the, and, and in, in a way that was meant to say, Rome did this publicly. Other capital executions were not done publicly, but the crucifixion was done on the corner of First and Roosevelt, where everybody could see it. And the reason they did that was so that people walked by and Rome said, we're in charge here. This is what happens to anybody who tr tries to uh, challenge our power. And so how could a Messiah, who's going to usher in a worldwide kingdom, one described in the prophets as this glorious king, how in the world could he die? And you know, we know that the disciples, had, they didn't have a clue what was going on. In Luke 24, we thought he was the Messiah. We don't know what happened. And later John will say, we didn't understand what was going on until after the Spirit was given. And even in Acts 1, before the Spirit's been given, they say, we don't know what's going on, but now you're going to usher in the kingdom, right? This, this, this just didn't fit their categories. But when he rises from the dead, that didn't fit their categories either. One man rising in the midst of history. And, but Paul, who struggles with this probably over a decade between his ministry, between his conversion and his ministry, is the theologian in the New Testament that comes to such profound insight on the cross and the resurrection. And for Paul, the cross and the resurrection, he argues, is that whole turning point in history where God has acted in Jesus to defeat all the curse and the sin and the pain and the suffering and the evil of the world. And, the, and the, that the resurrection is the beginning and the inauguration of the new creation. But then, as, uh, as not incomprehensible as the cross and the resurrection would have been, the commissioning would have been equally incomprehensible. Now, why do you think that is? You see, the prophets had, were very clear that the Gentiles were going to come to Israel. They were going to come to Israel and be gathered in. For example, Zechariah 8.23, the Gentiles will take hold of the Jewish ro a Jew with, uh, by his robe and say, we have heard that God is among you. Can we go and become a part of your people? And so the idea of this stream, this what theologians call the pilgrimage of the nations to Israel is what they were expecting. And now Jesus, as one person calls it, Chris Wright calls it the great change of direction, now sends this community to go out and live in the midst of the nations. And he commissions them to continue the mission that he began of making known the kingdom in his life and his words and his deeds in a way that follows Jesus. 
And he gives them the spirit to now begin to taste that salvation and that renewal and to begin to embody it even in broken but uh, initial ways so they can make it known in life, word, and deed. And so Act 5 then is an act that no Jew reading his Bible ever would have expected to come. They would have expected Acts 6 to follow, and you can just read Acts 1-6, and you can see that. When Jesus rises from the dead, comes to talk to him about the resurrection, the Spirit, and the kingdom, all things that the, that the prophets po- said pointed to the end. When he comes to talk to them, they say, Oh, now you're going to restore the kingdom fully to Israel, right Right? And I'm sure they were expecting, of course. I mean, you know your story. Of course I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel. But the shocking response of Jesus was, no. The delay of the end is going to continue. And you have a new identity. Your identity are witnessing, is a witnessing identity. And you are to witness in, 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 in your life, your words and your deeds. And that witness is going to come after you receive the Spirit who's going to give you a taste of the renewing salvation that I've accomplished. And you're to make sure that that good news of the kingdom that's coming is going to go to the ends of the earth. And so that defines this whole time period. Think about this. I tell you, when this dawned on me as a young seminary student, I remember thinking, wow. What it dawned on me was this. That, the, that there have been, there's been a 2,000-year, what shall we call it, era in the biblical story. And what is the meaning of that era? According to the New Testament authors, it's so that the good news will go to the ends of the earth and so that the church will make it known in their lives, their words, and their deeds and invite others in. And so what defines this act between the first coming of Jesus and his return is a church and a community that has begun to experience the resurrection life given by the Spirit. And as they do more and more to make it known with their lives, words, and deeds in every idolatrous culture in the world and showing that good news over against the darkness of every culture. Act 6 is the return of the king. When Jesus returns... He's going to complete his redemptive work. And so you see that redemption is initiated in Israel. It's accomplished in Jesus, but it's now completed when Jesus returns. Isn't that a great story? And what's even more great about it, that it's true. (laughs) That it's true. Every word of it is true. And that this is the way we need to see our world. This is the true story of the world. Well, what is our place in this drama? What's our place in this drama? Well, there it is. We're not in Act 1 when we live in a perfectly good creation. We're not in Act 2 just after the fall has taken place and a promise has been made. We're not in Act 3 where Israel was called to embody, the, uh, embody God's promise for the sake of the nations. We're not in Act 4 watching Jesus before and as he accomplishes salvation. We're in Act 5, where the first hundred years of Act 5 or so are given to us in the book of Acts, and we're continuing that story. We continue that story as it is given, with a trajectory that's given as we move towards Act 6. So we find ourselves in Act 5, experiencing that redemption that Christ has accomplished, but looking to that day when that redemption will be fully completed. So what time is it? in the biblical story. Where are we at? I want to open that up with a number of perspectives. The first, the kingdom is already arrived, but not yet here. How many of you have heard that language? Almost everybody. That's great. How many of you have stopped to think about how weird that language is? If my wife goes off to the airport to pick up my daughter and comes back and says, and I say to her, has Brielle come back? And, and my wife says, yep, she's already here, but she's not yet come. I would kind of say, you know, my wife is a pretty rational person. I'd say, what? And if she repeated it, yep, she's already come, but she's not yet arrived. It's, she's present, but she's still in the future. I start to be thinking, what are you talking about? And this is what the disciples were hearing. 
This is what they were hearing. The if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom has come upon you. It's here. It's here, right? Well, there's coming a day in the end when many of you are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say to you on that day, I never knew you. You can't come into my kingdom. Now he's talking about the future. About two-thirds of the time, the kingdom is future. About one-third of the time in the gospel, the kingdom is here. And the disciples are fit to be tied to make any sense of this in light of the story that has been given in the Old Testament. And I believe it's precisely Paul that helps to unravel this so deeply for us. Here is perhaps this diagram I found will explain so much of the New Testament, but especially Paul. Paul, it's almost like this framework is the framework that he's always using all the time. Now, what you have here is the prophetic expectation that has been reshaped by the rabbinic tradition of which Paul was a part. And the language that the rabbis used, Jesus used, Paul used, and they're used throughout the New Testament, so we know they're using this rabbinic framework. And here's how the rabbis at the time of Jesus, how Paul understood the world before he was a Christian. They believed that we were living in the old age. And that old age was dominated by sin and death and evil and Satan and suffering and pain and sickness and all that makes this world an unpleasant place. But they believed that a Messiah was coming, as Isaiah 61 and 42 and other texts said, that was going to be empowered and equipped by the Spirit and that he was going to usher in the age to come, as they called it. Sometimes they called it the kingdom. Sometimes they called it the banquet. Sometimes they called it the new creation. But the language that they most used were kingdom and age to come. And so there was coming a day when the Messiah would break into history, and there were so many views of what that would look like. There's a little group of Essenes that were way off, and they thought everybody was polluted except for them, and so they left Jerusalem and they'd become famous because we found a lot of biblical scrolls where they were. But these Essenes, they said the Messiah was going to break into history, and when he came into history, he was going to come with such overwhelming power that he would just breathe the breath of his mouth, and he would destroy not only the Gentiles, but all the Jews except for them. That was a, I mean, the idea of being the only true church goes back a long way. And here's the, they thought they were the only ones that would be saved. But then there was a group that was very powerful. Many of them were Pharisees. They were called zealots. And these zealots believed that the Messiah was going to come as a powerful military revolutionary. And they were just all waiting for him to come, and they would be ready, and they would begin to battle with him. And so they would carry swords and be ready for that. Does that ring any bells? Have you ever wondered what was going on in, what is it, Luke 19, where Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. What did, the, what did the disciples say? We've got two swords. Is that enough? What? What? We've got two swords. Is that enough? What in the world are they talking about? Well, we know that at least three of the 12 disciples were zealots. One is called a zealot. And likely Peter was too, and likely Judas Iscariot. There's likely three and maybe more zealots among Jesus' followers. And here are these zealots, and they got swords. What in the world are Jesus' disciples doing with swords? And he says, we got two swords, is that enough? And here's, here's what I think Jesus does, because the words are, yeah, that's enough. I think he goes something like, yeah, that's enough, let's go. I, I got a lot of teaching to do. I've got a lot of discipleship, and you don't understand yet. Yeah, let's go. And what was Peter, a fisherman, doing with a sword in Gethsemane? Have, you, have we become so familiar with the Bible that we don't say, this is weird? A man swinging a sword, as soon as they come to arrest Jesus, okay, the battle's on, the Messiah's going to usher in the kingdom, grab my sword, swing to cut off the head, guy ducks, loses his ear. And then Jesus heals him. He says, uh-oh. This is not what I expected. And he's totally messed up. You see, the disciples were expecting something totally different. 
Because they were looking for a Messiah who is instantaneously going to usher in this kingdom. And if you go back with this in mind and read the parables of Matthew 13, those parables will start to make incredible sense to you. Because what Jesus does is the kingdom of God is like. And then what he does is corrects all their mistaken notions with his parables. And so they were expecting the Spirit, this Messiah to come in the power of the Spirit and to usher in a world where the knowledge of God was going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, where the justice of God would make all things right, where the love of God would would renew everything, where there would be joy and shalom. The world would be returned to blessing the way it was meant to be. And so this is what they were expecting. But it didn't happen that way. Jesus announces, good news, the kingdom's come, but it's not yet come. And what was he talking about? Well, this diagram may be a very helpful one to you. It is to me. Basically, what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that these two ages overlap. That it is true, the age to come has arrived. Paul says so, in no uncertain terms. It's come. It's come with the work of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit said Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah was a gift from the end of history, a gift from the age to come. And that Spirit has now been poured out. And when Peter announces on Pentecost that the Spirit's given, he quotes Joel. He says, Joel says that in these last days, I will pour out my Spirit. And so with the gift of the Spirit's renewing work, there is a new power at work. Like Jesus said in Matthew 12, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdoms come upon you. The new age, the age to come has arrived. And so this age to come is broken into history. But notice what Jesus does in Matthew 13 with his parables. First parable. You're expecting the kingdom to come with a powerful Messiah riding a horse. Let me tell you a story about a humble, meek farmer and tell you how the kingdom comes with the word of the gospel. Not with a sword, but the gospel. Now you hear that? And what's the second parable? The second parable is, now, as that kingdom starts to come and the gospel is sown, what happens? An enemy arises. And an enemy starts sowing more seeds. And so he makes it clear that the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit, is going to, as it were, wake up even the satanic and evil powers even more so, and that there's going to be this powers of sin and death and evil and Satan are going to be still very much with us. And so that there is going to be this overlapping with two powers at work, the spirit of God and the spirit of evil at work. And so this is Paul's understanding. And with him, the cross is the defeat of that old age. And the resurrection is the inauguration of the new age. Now, when I was in seminary, like so many seminary students, I heard the already not yet ad nauseum. I had a course, I kid you not, in which we spent the entire course looking at texts, every text in the gospel showing the already not yet in Greek, no less. And when I finished, I was convinced. It was there, it was clear. There's two things I don't remember my professors saying. Number one, I never remember them saying, number one, this is weird. This is really strange. The disciples can't make any sense of this. So that by the end, I was saying, this is the way it is, very normal. The second thing I don't remember is why. Why does God hold off the end? Why is he waiting 2,000 years now? Why doesn't he usher things in? And this is not just a curious theological question. This is an existential question. Especially if you have done, if you have stood at the graveside of, say, a young mom who's died leaving behind her kids, and you feel that pain, you say, God, what are you waiting for? This is a defeated enemy, death is. Why don't you finish him off? And you wonder, what are you waiting for? And the answer that the New Testament gives is that this already not yet is so that, and Jesus says it clearly in Matthew 24, 14, so that the good news of the kingdom might go to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. The good news of the kingdom must go to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. What is holding history open is a church that is called to bear witness to the good news. Isn't that an incredible task? 
I mean, do you realize what a job we've been given? If I'm, if I'm at all right, uh, ain't close to right, what it means to be the people of God is not just people that have given a little bit of individual, a community that is to witness with their lives, individually, corporately, to the good news that the Spirit is renewing the creation, and one day, when Christ returns, He'll complete His work. So we are living in a time of witness. That means we have a foretaste of the kingdom. We have a foretaste of the kingdom. Now, you know what a foretaste, this is language, incidentally, from Hebrews 6, verse 4. Now, you know what a foretaste is. My wife makes the best spaghetti in the world. And if you've been here, you've heard me say that. She makes a lot of other things that are best in the world. And so when I, let's imagine that I come home and my kids are still young and I go to the pot and I take off the lid and I take a bite of that spaghetti because I'm hungry. I don't let my kids see me, but I do it. And then I put the top back on. The question is, have I had supper? Yes? Vote yes. Vote no. You're both right. Right? Of course I've had supper. What else do you think I was eating? I mean, I wasn't just sniffing it saying, it's coming. I was actually eating it. I was eating supper. But was I eating supper? No. That's not coming for 10 more minutes. When my wife calls us and when the kids are ready and we eat. A foretaste is on the one hand actual taste now. But it also says there's a complete meal coming in the future. And one of the favorite images of the rabbis that's used throughout the Gospels came from Isaiah 25 of the coming banquet. And so constantly Jesus and others are talking about the banquet to which people are invited. Do you remember Luke 14? There's a, Jesus is at a banquet. I, <laughs> I love this text. Jesus is at, a, is at a banquet, and he's there with the Pharisees. And one of the Pharisees, who would have been a good theologian, he knew banquets, and so he tries to make casual conversation with Jesus. And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, it's going to be a good day when that kingdom comes fully, right? The banquets reminded me of it. It's going to be a good day when that kingdom comes fully, right? And Jesus could, could have used a good course in how to win friends and influence people. He says, yes, it is, and you won't be there. Yes, it will be a good day and you won't be there because you've rejected the invitation. Then he tells the parable of how the king makes the banquet ready. All the guests are invited. Some of them refuse to come, so he goes out to people who have been invited and he draws them in. The banquet is pervasive throughout the Gospels because the rabbis love this image of the coming banquet kingdom and Jesus teaching them how the kingdom's coming. And that's why one author can begin a book with these words. Jesus eats his way through the Gospels. Have you ever noticed that? He eats his, he's always eating. He's always eating. What in the, why is he eating? Because he is teaching so much about the kingdom through his eating. As Tom Wright puts it, he's eating with all the wrong people. He's eating all the wrong food in all the wrong ways. He's challenging so many things with his eating. And the more you start to realize what he's doing with his meals is he's teaching them what the kingdom is like. And so what we hear is now that kingdom banquet has begun and we have been given a foretaste of it. But as the book of Revelation says, that banquet, that final wedding banquet is still in the future and is going to come fully when Christ returns. We've been given a foretaste. Why? Why not the whole meal? I mean, wouldn't it be, doesn't seem cruel if my wife said, you can have a nice foretaste of the spaghetti, but she's not going to feed you for another two weeks. I mean, that wouldn't be very, what, what's Jesus, what, why is God giving a foretaste for so long? And the, 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 the answer, I believe, that the New Testament gives is that we're called to be previews of the kingdom. I'm using the language of movies here, movie previews, those obnoxious things at the beginning of every movie that takes up more and more time where you see actual footage of the movie. It doesn't say the movie's coming. It shows you footage of the movie, and usually it's the only good footage in the whole movie. And they show you that footage, and they say, don't you want to see this? Don't you want to come and watch the movie in full when it comes out in the future? And the idea is the church is saying, one day, 
one day the earth is going to be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And so the church are the people that know God, live in communion with God, are in God's presence, all, uh, growingly in God's presence in their whole of their lives and say, this is what the new earth is going to be like. This is a preview, a broken preview, yes, a preview that's growing in small baby steps, but nevertheless a small preview that begins to say, this is where history is going. And if we've been given the Spirit, we have actual footage of the kingdom. And it's designed to interest the outside world in the future kingdom so that they will want to participate. That's why we've been given this Agnes foretaste. This is a, a diagram that I found very helpful that describes the situation of God's people at every point in history. As God's people, we look three directions. We look back to creation. And we look back to what God intended for, crea- for, God's, for people in creation. We say this is God's creational intent, what He wanted, the fullness of blessing and shalom at the beginning, and we're to show in our lives what this looks like. As Tom Wright says about mission, he says, the mission of God's people is to show everyone what true humanity looks like, what it really means to be human. And so we look back to the creation God's creational intent. But we look forward to the kingdom, the restoration of the creation, and we become a preview of that coming kingdom. But to live in God's creational design as a sign of the kingdom means in every culture of the world that we're placed, we must engage the culture in which we're living and engage that culture seeing all the good in the culture, but seeing how that good has been twisted by idolatry and learning how to say yes and no with the gospel. Yes to the marvelously good things of creation, no to its idolatry if we're to live faithfully. And so God's people face in three directions if they're to be a sign of the kingdom. Nicholas Waltersdorf speaks of the calling of God's people in three ways. And here's what's interesting. Waltersdorf is not a theologian. As you may know, he's a philosopher. He taught at Yale. And he's writing not here on theology. He's writing about education and scholarship. This idea of witness is not a church thing. It's a scholarship thing. What are we, how are we to be as Christian scholars is what he's talking about. Here's what he says. We can summarize the calling of that people, the church, in the world today with three words. The church is called the witness. To be a witness to the coming of God's kingdom, God's work of renewal, urging all people everywhere to repent and join the band of Christ's followers. The church is called to serve. To serve all people everywhere by relieving their misery and their lack of joy, both attacking the structures that victimize and alleviating the misery of the victims. The church is called in its own life and community to give evidence of the new life. Not just to wait around in the promise that someday there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but to exhibit the fact that in Christ there is a new power and that the kingdom has broken in. That's an incredible vocation, is it not? To witness, to serve, and to give evidence of the coming of the kingdom. So that's the first thing. The kingdom has already arrived, but not yet fully here. So we witness to the goal of history. We're saying, this is what's coming in the end, and we're to embody that end of history and invite others into it. Say, this is where it's going. The kingdom's come. It's broken into history. Come be part of it. We're to be the witness. This is the language of Daryl Guder in a book on witness. He says, we're to be the witness, do the witness, and say the witness. We're to be the witness, do the witness, and say the witness. So our lives, our deeds, and our words all point to the coming of the kingdom. Have you heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? I think the two people that have hated Christ and his church more than anybody in Western civilization is Voltaire and Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a German philosopher, died at 1900. He hated Christians, and he hated Christ more. He thought Christ was a wimp. He had no respect for Christ, and he just looked at him, and he just was sickened by who Christ was. He hated Christians, and he hated Christ, and he made it clear in his writings. In the midst of a very interesting discussion about sex, 
He says, Christians don't seem to understand the joy of creation. And they seem to be such prudish people that can't enjoy the good things in creation. He's discussing the way creation brings so many good things, which is a very sad, telling comment on Christians. But then he goes on to say this. They would have to sing better songs to me that I might believe in their Redeemer. His disciples would have to look more redeemed. You want me to believe the good news that the kingdom has come? Show me. Remember I said last night, our words can be empty. We can announce good news. The power of God's kingdom is broken in, and people say, where? Show me. Let's see it. And we should be able to point to the church. David Bosch puts it this way. He says, the Christian's lifestyle should not only be exemplary, but also winsome. It should attract outsiders and invite them to join the community. Their exemplary existence is a powerful magnet. He's describing Paul's understanding of mission here, by the way. Their exemplary existence is a powerful magnet that draws outsiders toward the church. What might this look like? Some of you have seen these lists. This list keeps changing for me. But this is a list that has come as I have preached and tried to work out what this might look like and give feet to this. It would be a community of justice in a world of economic and ecological injustice. It would be a community of generosity and simplicity of I have enough in a consumer world. It would be a community of truth that holds to the truth with boldness but recognizes that we, our grasp of the truth is often weak and so we're humble. There's not an arrogance about our claim. And so often you see such an unattractive holding to the truth, do you not? Of Christians that hold to the truth and their way they do it is just ugly. But there ought to be a holding to the truth that is unflinchingly bold, but at the same time humility, humble and meek. A community of truth in a world of uncertainty and suspicion. A community of joy and thanksgiving in a world of entitlement. Looking for ways to live out joy in a world where we think we deserve everything. Finally, a community, not finally, but a community who experiences God's presence in a secular world that doesn't believe God exists. And if he does, he's outside of this creation. A community experiences that presence and says, this is what's happening. One day, this creation will be filled with the glory and the knowledge of God. A community of self-control and marital fidelity in a world that is saturated by sex. A community of forgiveness in a world of hatred, competition, violence, grudge, and revenge. This in itself, in our selfish, hedonistic, self-centered world, would be powerful. A community of self-giving love that literally lived every moment in living with a self-giving spirit of giving, giving, giving. Never looking for one's own needs, as Paul says in Philippians 2, but constantly looking outside for the needs of others. Self-giving love in a world of selfishness and selfish gratification. A community of wisdom in a world of proliferating knowledge and information technology. Technology is making us dumb. It's giving us a lot of information and making us dumb. And the community that learns how to handle technology in such a way where they live lives of wisdom, not just good with Google, but really have wisdom and can bring together and understand the world in light of the knowledge that comes to them, that's going to be a powerful witness and testimony. A community of patience in a world of immediate gratification. A community of compassion in a world numbed by overexposure to violence and tragedy. Sometimes, do you feel like me? You just, I can't take anymore. I've just seen so much on the news. I've seen it everywhere. I can't take anymore. How in the world can we stop from being numbed? A world, a community that uses language positively in a world of destructive communication. I read a book on the book of James on the way over to Brazil last week. And I have been reading the book of James through a number of times over the last month. And I am so impressed about what he says about the tongue. 
If you can control your tongue, James says, you can control every part of your, law, of your life. And he says the tongue is where you begin to see what's really in the heart. How do you use language? How do we use our language in a world where language is used so destructively? A community of depth in a world of superficiality. We're, our, our, our culture is making us more and more image and superficial. And when people see, peop, when, when people see others of, with depth, it impresses them. A community of cheerful seriousness in a culture of triviality. And what I mean by cheerful seriousness, where there's a real sense of joy, but where we recognize that we're living in a world that is, where the choices we make matter and they're serious, that we're living and our lives are brief, as it was read for us this, uh, by Danae. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're like grass. They're gone. And the decisions we make are going to impact, uh, are going to impact our world, and our lives can be lives well-lived or poorly lived. And if you're like me, if you're a pastor who's done funerals, you've done both of those kinds. I just did one, and it was marvelous. A woman, 90, who her life was well-lived. She gave herself for the sake of the kingdom in so many ways. She was a single woman, and she had amassed a very good amount of money, and she had lived very faithfully and lived so simply and left that to so many Christian causes, and she had done so much, and there's a gathering of people, and there's a sense of joy. Here was a life well-lived. But then you also do funerals where people's lives have been wasted. And so there's a seriousness about life, but there's a joy in living as well. And in our triviality, we take away from the seriousness and we don't have the depth of joy either. A community committed to the important issues of our globe in a culture of apathy and indifference. A community of self-giving in a culture of self-absorption, narcissism, and entitlement. And a, a community of purpose, that we live with purpose in a world of non-committal apathy. A community of hope in a world that has become disillusioned and has also lost a sense of the future with this consumer satiation. Can you see how every one of these could lead to a long discussion Many of these I've taken just one of them and been able to, there's scripture points to, calls us to humility and open up a community of humility and a world of arrogant self-interest. And you can see how our world is so, as it's centered on itself, is so full of an arrogant self-interest. A community of joy in a world dominated by a frantic and hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. I mentioned yesterday a... Um, contemporary testimony, Our World Belongs to God, that's a very poetic testimony of the Christian faith from creation to consummation told in the story, doxological, poetic form. They have a line in there that I love. It says, pursuing pleasure, we lose the gift of joy. Pursuing pleasure, we lose the gift of joy. This frantic, hedonistic pursuit of pleasure, and we live the joy that God intended us to have living in His world. And it's so superficial, this, that, that pleasure. A community of joyful purpose in a world that is amusing itself to death. That's the title of a book by Neil Postman, a very good book, where he, the title of the book is Amusing Ourselves to Death. We're, in Western culture, we are so concerned with amusement and entertainment that we are killing ourselves. He, Postman wasn't a Christian, but amusing ourselves to death. And finally, a community of praise in a world of narcissism. Actually, this is an older list. I have about five more that I've added since then. But you get the picture, right? You get the picture of what kind of people we're called to be. And what this can help us do is think through what it means to live as a contrast society with the people of, who are being shaped by a different story. So last night I was asked, what does this look like and live in a different story? Well, here's some of my answers. Okay, let's take a, do you want to take a break, Jim, or how do you want to do this? You're not going to ask me a question. When Jim asks questions, your, they're hard. Your question's coming. Um, so, 
Uh, before we take a break, I just wanted, while this is still fresh on our mind, um, to, to, to have a little discussion question to solidify this. By the way, I've heard Mike read this list in various places probably 20 to 30 times, and every time I'm like gripped, convicted, and just want everyone to just start discussing this thing and, and, and start imagining what it looks like to live it out. So I want to do that. Um, I want to just give you a little scenario to set up this discussion. I want you to imagine that a van of people uh, pull up and they pop through the door right here. And they come into the room and they say, listen, you've got 24 hours to take us anywhere in this city to show us and to make a case to us that Jesus, this Jesus that you say you believe in, really does exist. 24 hours, we'll go anywhere you want to go, meet anyone you want to see, take us anywhere. So the question is this, who would you introduce them to and where would you take them around the city to show them the reality of this Christ? Or phrased another way, what previews of the kingdom would you go ahead and show them? So discuss that with a few people around you and after you've discussed for a minute or two, uh, go, go ahead and go straight into a break and then we'll come back in about five minutes with some questions.